0: Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer.
1: And I'm Will Oremus.
0: Today we'll discuss a rather terrifying security flaw from Apple, a company that prides itself on keeping information well protected. A bug was found in the video chat app FaceTime that lets snoops listen in on someone by calling them on FaceTime even if the call wasn't answered.
1: Then we'll be joined by Franklin Foer. He's a staff writer for The Atlantic, former editor-in-chief of The New Republic, and author of a book about what he calls the existential threat of big tech. We'll talk to him about the recent wave of layoffs in the media, including big cuts at BuzzFeed, HuffPost, and Gannett newspapers, and how those tie into the dominance of companies like Google and Facebook over the way we get information now.
0: And as always, we'll end with Don't Close My Tabs, some of the best things we saw on the web this week. That's all coming up on If Then.
2: For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Click dot or just stop by Granger for the ones
3: who get it done.
1: All right, April. Good to see you. I saw that you have continued reporting on PG and E's woes out in California lately.
0: Yeah. Uh, last night, the um, the board decided to go ahead and file for bankruptcy. Uh, which which means that the interests of the creditors to the company are going to be prioritized over those of the fire victims and the ratepayers. And, you know, as the debt is consolidated in bankruptcy court, uh, we could, you know, see much longer wait times for people to, you know, get any sort of, uh, you know, justice or, or, or money back and, and, and perhaps even uh, lower settlements uh, for people who, who are still awaiting um Kind of getting getting some some sort of money from the fact that they lost their homes and and, and loved ones and, and and so much more. So um, a major story, just to note, pg and serves sixteen million people. All right, so like two New Yorks, um, and uh, and is saying that it's about fifty billion uh, in in debt that it's unable to 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 really account for. Um, so we'll we'll see what happens from this, but. Um, it could be devastating for uh, for Californians, for sure.
1: Yeah, and a story that's not really be- being covered on a national level quite the way you might expect. So I'm glad you've kept on that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think there's an interminable amount of uh, reporting from California and, and the energy crisis here. Um, but, but, Will, what, what have you been kind of focusing on over the past week or so?
1: What I was looking at today was a really nasty bug in Apple's FaceTime app.
0: Yeah. Uh, so this happened last night. I saw people were really, seemed rightfully kind of freaked out about it because it was, it seemed pretty uh, ubiquitous. What what exactly was the bug or is the bug?
1: All right. So here's how it worked. I call you on FaceTime mm-hmm. and before you answer, I add my own number to the call to make it a three-way call. And I patch myself in as the third party. Then before you even pick up the call, I can listen. I immediately can start listening through the microphone on your phone or, or your laptop. And the crazy part is if you then went and you saw it ringing, maybe you're doing something else. So you hit the, the volume down button, which makes the ringing stop. That would actually activate your video camera. And then I could be looking through your camera at you without your knowledge um and it would stop only when the call timed out uh, it would, then i would i would lose that access so we don't know if hackers actually exploited this uh, for nefarious purposes but they certainly could have and we learned today that this was actually discovered by a 14 year old playing Fortnite a couple of weeks ago and he, his mother tried to help him alert apple about it for a week before they finally broke through It ended up being widely reported on Monday night, and by early Tuesday morning, Apple had just shut down three-way calling, or or group FaceTime, as it's called, while they're working on a a more permanent fix to the bug.
0: And so this is coming after we learned about kind of a downturn in iPhone sales, and also the company's quarterly earnings are supposed to be released soon, right?
1: Yeah, it came right ahead of, of the earnings report. So I don't think we'll see any impact there, but it's fair to assume we'll get some questions from investors. To me, the takeaway here is, you know, Apple is a company that has really tried to orient itself lately around protecting its users' privacy. We talked about how it put up a big billboard at CES, the annual tech conference in Las Vegas, saying what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone. So even a company that is prioritizing privacy, you still can't fully trust it. And and in some ways, it could actually be... You know, there could actually be more danger to the average person from Apple products and services than from, say, Facebook. Because by now, I think there's there's a broad public awareness that you shouldn't post stuff or put stuff in Facebook that you know is really sensitive. But for a lot of us, people who use Apple products loyally, our laptop or our uh, iPhone, you know, we take it everywhere. We give it in- intimate access to our lives, um, and and we trust Apple. And this is just a good reminder that you know if if you're giving up that kind of data if you're giving that kind of access if you have a camera in your pocket and a and a microphone in your pocket and a smart speaker in your living room and a camera on your laptop that there will be things that go wrong inevitably even among companies that are doing their best to prevent it
0: yeah you know we really have always kind of propped apple up as as the you know privacy pioneers and 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 really uh stewards of of good examples of of keeping data safe because they're not as much in the intention economy as everyone else, but you're right essentially, these are networked devices that we carry with us everywhere, and we trust to. Kind of be a conduit to the most sensitive conversations of our lives and uh and we don't know how how bad this <laughs> this was and and we don't know uh, how it was used improperly exactly yet and uh, and it's a lot of trust that we uh kind of give to these companies that somewhat time and time again show that maybe we we shouldn't uh, trust them so much. But we don't really have a a choice and I mean, to be fair apple has uh, has been you know relatively Seems like very privacy conscious, um, and and this is a bug, um, you know something that that of course they didn't intend to to have in in the iPhone,
1: right? And I think if you're looking for for one small takeaway, I mean it could just be overwhelming and depressing to think that we never have any privacy anywhere, and there's nothing we can do about it. If you're looking for one small pri- uh, takeaway. The people who put a little bit of tape over their laptop camera can probably feel a little bit vindicated today. The idea being that you don't want uh, somebody to be able to take over your camera without your knowledge and be spying on you through it. Um, I actually use a little bit of painter's tape, which is nice because it doesn't leave residue. You can just stick it on or take it back off. It's one small step. It probably won't save you, but if you want to feel like you're doing something, it's not the worst idea.
0: Next, we'll have our interview with Franklin Four from The Atlantic to talk about job cuts at BuzzFeed and the greater media landscape under the influence of mega tech companies.
1: He's a staff writer for The Atlantic. He's the former editor-in-chief of The New Republic. And he's the author of the recent book, World Without Mind, The Existential Threat of Big Tech. Franklin, welcome to If Then. Great to be here. The news this week is that digital media outlets and print media outlets have been laying people off, laying off journalists. So BuzzFeed laid off 15% of its staff. HuffPost laid off 7% of its staff. Gannett is laying off reporters at papers across the country. How does that tie in to this knowledge monopoly that you see, comp- companies like Google and Facebook acquiring and maintaining.
3: Well, I think Buzzfeed is probably the best example that we should really zoom in on because, in so many ways, it is the quintessential uh, media company of the Facebook era. That when it was created by Jonah Peretti in you know more than ten years ago, uh, the the business model for the company was all about um, creating content that would go viral. Peretti, of course, was studied at the MIT Media Lab, where he became obsessed with the, the concept of what makes something go viral. And then he'd, he'd worked at Huffington Post, and he saw the emergence of, of social networks and wanted to create a business that could exploit the power of the networks to produce content that would, that would become wildly viral. I think, as time has gone on, it's clear that instead of mastering the platform, BuzzFeed in some ways was kind of mastered by the platform and so um, at first BuzzFeed thought that it couldn't it wouldn't have to rely on Facebook for advertising revenue because so much of its advertising revenue was going to come through what's called native advertising where they were they were working with firms and brands to specifically design um, advertising that was embedded in BuzzFeed's site, and that was a little bit confusing to identify, but that, that model didn't really work. And So then started to try to sell the same sort of digital advertising that Slate, or the Washington Post, or Vox sells. But the problem is, is that in that world of digital advertising, there's just no beating the platforms, that a company like Facebook or Google both has more data than BuzzFeed or any other media company has, and therefore, can um, identify audiences better, um, but also just given their scale and the, the volume of advertising that they have, they can constantly undercut um, the 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 their competitors in the marketplace. They can always sell advertising che- cheaper because they just have so many damn eyeballs. And so, we've emerged in this world where Facebook and Google have become this duopoly, where they control over seventy percent of the advertising market and it's simply become hard for anybody else to compete. And the tragedy of BuzzFeed is that they, in some ways, represented media's best hope. That they were the company that best mastered this new era, that had the most, the best technology, the best digital savvy. And yet, as we've seen from these layoffs, they just couldn't, they couldn't hack it on the scale that they initially planned.
0: When we're all using the same conduit to reach readers or, or listeners, subscribers or whatever, I guess readers in this case, uh, we all start publishing the same thing. And, you know, even though maybe more people are reading than ever, we have all this free content, we're actually all kind of telling the same story and over, over and over again. It's a demise of localism, but it's also a homogenization of, of content. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that.
3: Yeah, it's one of the ultimate ironies of the Internet, which is supposed to be uh, this nicheified highly customized, personalized space where you get what you want and you find your little communities. Right. And yet the incentive structure for media in a world governed by Facebook and Google is to produce to this kind of lowest common denominator. And really, I think the key term of our era is trending, yes. that we all try to uh, produce things that are on a subject that's at the trailhead of its ascent to popularity. And we're all trying to kind of scrape uh, traffic from precisely the same subjects and part of this is the tyranny of data and the way in which we allow data to dictate um, uh, the judgments of the industry uh, but it's also it's as I think you're suggesting it, it's just embedded in this world we're all trying to uh, we, we all we all view traffic um, as something that we can glean from the platforms. And so then we're playing by the platform's rules. And the platforms um, are pushing us in a certain direction towards this the same conversation.
1: Right. And so the fact that we now get our news largely from Google and from Facebook, instead of opening the newspaper that's on our doorstep or subscribing to print magazines or even going to visit a, a particular website means that, uh, you know, for a while people thought that if you could just game these algorithms, then that was the way to succeed. And and as you said, that's exactly what BuzzFeed did. They did it better than anybody else. And now even BuzzFeed is finding that it can't support quite the kind of journalistic enterprise uh, that it thought uh, on on this advertising economy. So where does that leave us? I mean, you know, clearly Facebook and Google are – you know, consumers choose to go there. People choose to go there to find their news. I don't think – I don't know that you can stop them from doing that because they bring together all these different sources that appeal to you. On the other hand, their model seems to be predicated on the the fact that they don't have to actually pay to create this content, right? I mean fundamental to, to being a tech company is that you're not the one paying huge teams of humans to produce the content. You're just, you're just aggregating it.
3: I mean, I think that you, you said that it's maybe it wouldn't be possible to stop people from relying on Facebook and Google as primary portals. And I think that we're in the relatively early stages of a pretty tremendous backlash against Facebook. It's a bit of a cultural revolution, a countercultural revolution, where I think there's this broad sense that the media environment has gotten drecky, that... Facebook played this role in the election of Donald Trump and the spread of misinformation and that it's an environment where we're all subjected to tremendous amounts of manipulation. And you do see users, at least I mean, at an elite level, I think, starting to talk about retreating. And I think that its cultural prestige, at the very least, has plummeted over the course of this, which suggests that maybe we can make ourselves less dependent on the platform. Not that I think that this is necess- this is just a consumer issue, which I I emphatically do not. But I do think that as consumers, we do we do make choices and we do have we you know if we don't like this environment, this ecosystem, um, we can make a series of personal ethical <laughs> changes about how we interact with it. So then I do think that there they're policy questions which that we, we, for generations, we were sleeping on the question uh, questions about corporate bigness and you do see antitrust um, returning as a topic that's not just a fringe lefty uh, area of, of conversation. I think it'll be a, an important issue in the next presidential campaign. I, I'm sure you saw Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, tweets over the weekend about the peril of big tech and the threat that it specifically represents to media. And I think it's really telling that she's trying to, she said, she, I think she used the phrase that it's, it's basically the most, it's, she, she said it was one of the most important issues that we face. And so I do think that that is evidence of a zeitgeist that's headed in a direction where you have uh, you have people talking about breaking up these companies into, Smaller pieces, so uh, and, and I think one of the areas that you would see antitrust potentially go straight after is this advertising monopoly
0: with journalism though, it seems that there might always be a funding struggle uh unless there is just like a rich magnate that wants to forward you know their agenda or wants to 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 put money behind something because they believe it's in the public interest and I'm curious what you think about the idea of there being some sort of like you know, 1% tax or endowment or something that that uh, kind of big Internet companies have to pay. I, you know, this is something that um, I've heard some people float. I think Emily Bell had some version of this, but to to fund journalism, uh, you know, a way to, to kind of make sure that there's always money for this public good.
3: It's hard um, in that the United States doesn't have a tradition of government subsidizing media at least not one that that we can call upon that's part of our immediate memory but in fact so as a, as, a, as somebody who actually edited a print magazine uh, what we were we were subsidized by the US government we sent things through the US mail right. and there was a postal rate that gave us a comparative advantage on other media and that was something that the founders and that the early republic really focused on as a way of making sure that information served this purpose that you just described. Uh, I am not adverse to thinking about a model where, you know, we have a national endowment for the humanities. We have uh, a national institute of health. We have examples where government subsidizes activities uh, that the market where there's some sort of market failure. And they actually work pretty well. I mean, I, 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 they're small scale, but the National Endowment for the Humanities or NIH fill, fill gaps. They, they produce, they, they yield pretty good results. And we're squeamish about that. And understandably so. When Donald Trump is president of the United States, it's kind of hard to imagine uh, wanting to have the government have uh, take a deeper role in journalism. But as we confront this crisis, I think it's important to have a sense of imagination. And you know, the fact that there's the possibility of Trump meddling in something like this doesn't mean that it would actually turn out that way. I don't think he meddles with any evidence of meddling, him meddling with the National Endowment for the Humanities or NIH or any of these other structures. You can, you can insul- you can find ways to um, insulate them. And if you have a president who's messing around with well insulated institutions like that well then you're already in an authoritarian area era
0: You know, you you mentioned earlier that we haven't really seen effective antitrust action uh, from, you know, U.S. policymakers in some time. I think it's been over 20 years since since Microsoft. And, you know, certainly there's a flavor for that amongst our elected officials. But I'm not necessarily seeing any sort of like actionable proposals coming from them nor am I or like things that that will really concretely they can pile on behind. Nor am I seeing the FTC really willing to do that, at least under Trump. Um, You know, there's definitely been some comments and some things that we can get excited about. And so I'm curious, like, I do think that eventually, maybe one day, I hope we we can see some sort <laughs> of antitrust action. But I'm worried that it's going to be too late. Yeah. Yeah. I'm worried that it's going to happen when the industry is already gutted and there's not much left to save. And that's kind of why I'm interested also in this endowment idea, because like maybe we're going to need both. Right. Maybe we're going to need to break up the power and fund it something new. But, you know, once something is gone, it's really hard to 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 resurrect it, it's 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 hard to undo um, things. It's you know, so I'm worried about timing.
3: The Facebook Local News Initiative, I think, will be an interesting test where you could pour 300 million dollars into local news and probably still get nothing because once those institutions are gone, they do become harder to reinvent. I um, so there are a couple problems. One is that over time. Our notions, uh, our understanding of antitrust has morphed, and so uh, in the night, starting in the '60s, you had the Bork revolution in antitrust, where once upon a time antitrust was concerned with corporate bigness and saw bigness as inherently threatening. And then when Bork shifted us to this uh, model, where we only started to worry about uh, bigness when prices got jacked up and everything became about the welfare of the consumer, we took this 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 several decade dangerously wrong turn and it's hard to zigzag back in the other direction. And so the idea of acting quickly against these companies, I think requires us overcoming about 50 years of bad jurisprudence, bad regulatory practice, and it's going to be hard to correct that fairly quickly. I think that the best approach is probably an all of the above approach. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I don't know if you've uh, you guys have talked to Mark Warner, um, but he, he, he his white paper uh, yeah. that he published last summer, I thought was the best attempt that I've seen by a politician to wrestle with these questions. And um, I thought he was a little squeamish about antitrust, but he had about 10 different um, solutions that he proposed, um, all of which were interesting all of which can make a difference, none of which on their own would be sufficient.
1: It is interesting that news recently came out of Facebook that it's looking at consolidating or or more deeply integrating Facebook proper with its other properties, Instagram and WhatsApp. And a lot of people, I think, rightly interpreted that partly as an anticipation of potential antitrust action, right? Like if, if they can weave WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook together, they're going to be that much harder to split apart. Um, I'm I'm not entirely optimistic about antitrust uh, taking on big tech in a way that ends up being meaningful for the media, partly because I think there's, there's like a natural monopoly force at work where – I think no matter what you do to Google or Facebook, there will be a desire for a lot of people to open one feed and see stuff from all their friends and see, you know, or open one website and be able to search for news stories. I, I feel like that's not going to go away. That's that's my bias, that there will always be portals that aggregate the news. But given that that's the case currently at least um, – what would you do if you were starting a media outlet today? If you were going to run a media outlet, what would be your business model? Um, I'm assuming it would not be uh, trying to get as many eyeballs as possible on Facebook and then convert those into uh, into money via pennies on the dollar digital advertisements.
3: Yeah, as you correctly guessed, I'm not a viral guy. I signed up yesterday for a newsletter that a journalist from Wired started uh, who was covering Amazon. I, I gave him $50 uh, for him to produce this, this newsletter that's going to be a really detailed look uh, at Amazon. And I think that uh, you know, we've just been seduced by delusions of scale in our business. And um, we never ha- used to have those before. And I do think that uh, I would do something that would be fairly, it would have a clear audience that's not the entire world that I could speak to in a way that builds a sense of affinity and that is deemed as a commodity that's worth paying for. One of the flaws in the BuzzFeed model is that as it tried to be everything, we've heard all these announcements about these desks and bureaus, and it was it, there was, a, you know, the Mexico bureau got shut down. The, the
1: national security team, national desk, health team, yeah
3: it was such a vast sprawling thing and it, and it was actually a very unfocused organization, even, even more unfocused than say, probably than the New York times and the way that it kind of, it, it kind of organically sprawled without any disciplining mechanism. But I think n- niches is, is, is what people will increasingly turn to and um, trying to build up, this deeper sense of relationship, what this deeper relationship, which unfortunately I think is will require us probably downscaling even more. Because if your if your goal is 80,000 subscribers who pay you a good chunk of change every year, how many how many reporters can you sustain with that kind of revenue model? Not that many.
1: Franklin Forrest, thanks so much for joining us on if then. Thanks, guys. One final quick break, and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things that we saw online this week.
0: It's time for Don't Close My Tabs. Uh, Will, what tab could you not shut this week?
1: All right. For once, this is a long story that I actually did finish. And it was because it was such a gripping read, although in kind of a weird way. This was an essay from Wired. And the headline was a little misleading to me. The headline is, is big tech merging with big brother? Kind of looks like it. That's like the kind of casual tone where I would expect a short blog post. I, I would have missed this actually if someone hadn't flagged it on Twitter as like this is amazing. You have to read this. What a wild essay! I was like, okay, really? So I read it, and and this person was exactly right. It's it's by David Samuels, um, who who is a freelance writer, I guess, is a contributor to New York Times Magazine, N plus um, One, does is the literary editor at Tablet. Um, he takes you on this whirlwind tour of the history of philosophy and science fiction and speculative fiction to put our, our sort of present tech moment in perspective. He's looking at, All the the big works through history that have focused on the idea of machine intelligence and on questions of whether the the information in society is controlled by some central authority or whether there's free expression. He sees uh, in, in Google and Facebook powers that are increasingly regulating what we can say and have sort of veto power over what gets said and by whom. Um, he also ties in the social credit system in China where sort of everything you say or do online goes into building a score that will then determine your access to um, government benefits and and how you get treated uh, in various settings in society. So it's really – you got to like sit back and like brew some tea and be ready to, to mull over it for a while. Um, it's not – I didn't find it entirely coherent, but it's really fascinating. And, <laughs> and, and maybe, okay, maybe I best read it is now. just like I don't need to read yeah, my it. essays. <laughs> and maybe best as, a, as like a bibliography, just a reading list okay, of amazing stuff that you should review. go back and yeah. read for a historical perspective. Yeah.
0: No, you know, intellectual history is super important to, to trace back. It's something that I think a lot about when I think about kind of why companies are inactive or unable to. Um, consider themselves
1: responsible
0: <laughs> for for certain uh, things that we all have to live with every day.
1: But yeah, so that was my tab this week. April, what about yours?
0: OK, so it is a story that just came out while we are recording here um, on our local station. I know I'm always giving the like, Bay Area news. And I'm sorry if our listeners are all over the place and don't care about the Bay Area, but it's a really important spot um, with a ton of billionaires that kind of control uh, all of the world's information or our access to it. <laughs> and, and today uh, that was really put into um, stark relief with the fact that uh, Pandora officially Uh, is now um, going to be acquired by satellite radio company Cirrus XM for $3.5 billion. Pandora is based in Oakland. Uh, And, you know, this was announced in September and I wrote about it back then. The thing is, is that Pandora and Cirrus are actually owned by a company called Liberty Media.
1: I had no idea, by the way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And so Liberty Media uh, has given millions to Trump um, and uh, and political action committees of the GOP, and as well as executives from the company, and so this merger is also important because it's not just um, Pandora and Sirius, which we have to realize are one of the biggest streaming companies and the biggest digital radio and satellite radio companies, but also. Um, the CEO of Liberty is the chairman of the board and has significant stake in Live Nation, which acquired Ticketmaster in 2010. So this is a major music monopoly. Um, and it is kind of a tech story in a way because we're talking about kind of the gatekeeping to how we consume uh, art and, and and music and, and kind of uh, – when we see consolidation on that front, we often see homogenization um, and the interests uh, of those companies are apparently politically deep within the interest or aligned with the interest of uh, President Trump. So really uh, important story to watch as we um, kind of continue to see consolidation from uh, tech companies or at least like tech platforms kind of infiltrate every every aspect of how we uh consume media um and you know thinking how that's affecting the music industry we're talking about how we get tickets the venues that we that we uh see musicians in the avenues through which we listen when we're not seeing them live um all consolidated kind of under the same trump d- donor so uh that's that's something i'm, I'm going to keep watching for sure for sure for sure As somebody who's kind of you know grew up and, and loves the, the music industry i kind of grew up in it so
1: all right, a good tab. And that is our show for this week. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod.
0: You can also email us at IfThenAtSlate.com. Send us your tech questions, your gripes, what you love about us, uh, and we'll see them and maybe get back to you, maybe not, but we'll definitely see them. Really appreciate everyone that emails us when they do.
1: You can also tweet at us, by the way, at IfThenPod. I, I realize oh, yeah. we don't always do the greatest job of updating you on what's coming up next, but we, we do read that as well. We read the replies. You can follow me on April on Twitter as well. I'm at Will Arimus. April is at April Laser.
0: Thanks again to our guest, Franklin Four. You can find him on Twitter at Franklin Four. F-O-E-R is his last name. And thanks to everyone who left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to us. We appreciate it when you do that. Uh, if you haven't done it yet, please leave us a five-star review right now.
1: If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs
0: thanks to Alberto Hernandez for engineering here in lovely Berkeley, California.
1: And thanks to Nick Holmes at Occupy Studios in Newark, Delaware, where it is the worst possible weather today, 35 and raining. We will see you next
0: week. (laughs) Hang in there. Bye, everybody.